Hello everyone, and welcome to Sweating the Small Stuff, a show where we sweat over how to pursue your own creative passions. I'm your host, Cameron Buzar-Jamari, and I'm joined by the incredibly talented Jessica Abel. Jessica, I'm so excited to have you here because I have been a big fan of your work for a few years now. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. And thank you, by the way. Thanks for being a fan and thanks for inviting me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm a cartoonist and author and educator slash coach in the area of getting your big creative passions out in the world. So thus being here. Um, but I've been a cartoonist for you know about 30 years, actually, and done a lot of fiction, nonfiction, all kinds of other stuff. And I've been teaching in at the college level in art schools for over 20 years and then been doing the the work with independent creators not undergraduates <laughs> for um about four years I always knew that you were doing all these different creative endeavors but I never realized like your creative endeavors to me are always amazing because they're like a little meta they're a little beyond like I'm not just creating a comic I'm creating a comic about how to create art I'm like I think some of the earliest work of yours I was introduced to is uh I, I think it was called Radio and Illustrated Guide that you're doing for this American Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that might have been the first time I was introduced to your work and that was an entire it was a book depicting how they make episodes of this American Life, right? Yeah, and that's actually the the root of how I ended up doing um Out on the Wire 20 years later, 15 years later, whatever mm-hmm. it was. So um, Radio and Illustrated Guide I did, it's a, a floppy comic book, like a 32-page book um, mm-hmm. that I did for This American Life in 99. It came out in 1999. And it was designed to be a pledge drive premium. And it literally was like walking you through the steps of creating um, a narrative audio radio piece. Like how, what? how do you pitch it? Like what does a pitch look like? And there's literally a pitch letter printed in it in the in the book. And... Um, what are the, you know, how do you create a script and how do you do your research and what happens when you interview and what are, you know, best principles for this and that. And despite the fact that the tech has changed, the the way that that kind of show and that This American Life specifically is put together has basically not changed the entire time. So it's continued to be useful for a very long time. Around the 10 year mark, I kind of woke up and thought, wait a second, like I've been getting, encountering people randomly around the world, literally around the world. Like I remember having a conversation about this in Finland once with somebody who was like, my brother found your book and that's why he's a radio producer. It's just all these weird encounters with people who had found the book. And why I say weird, because it was only ever sold, virtually only ever sold via This American Life's website. Like that's the <laughs> only way you could get it. Not even on the front page, it was like buried on their website. And yet it had this really significant impact on the world of narrative audio. And when I came back to work in that world again, to do my next book and the radio stuff, people knew who I was because they'd see, everybody read the book. Like it was easy to, you know, build rapport with my interviewees because they all knew me, you know, they all knew what I'd done. So it was really, um, took that role basically because it was then and still is in some ways less so now, um, the only book out there that laid out the process of creating narrative audio. And everybody was gobsmacked by This American Life when it came out in the mid 90s. They were just like, what is this thing? It's amazing. And um, they were they were super curious about it. And the book was based on a, a live show that Ira would do. He would live talk about how they make their show and present stuff. And so I took that and adapted it and you know, built it out into comics form. You know, people would, he's like, people show up and listen to me talk about this. It's so weird. You know, this. <laughs> 
but it was really there's a ton of curiosity about that because people wanted to make more stories like that. So when I did when I came back to um, do Out on the Wire, um, I really didn't need to rework. You know, Radio and Illustrated Guide still st- stood on its own, like it still was what it needed to be. And and the fir- 24 pages of it of that 32 page book are in the preface of Out on the Wire. And Out on the Wire is subtitled um, Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. And it's so what I did is basically in that book, I pivoted from talking about technically what are the steps of work, like what are the stages of work to what are the principles of storytelling that underpin this really amazing form of storytelling? For anyone listening, what I really hope you get out of this conversation is, Jessica, you do such a good job of making actionable things. You, you First of all, you make content that like, it's about something interesting, so I already care. And then you make it, you know, a comic book, so it's even easier for me to consume as always, like incredibly illustrated. I hope if you haven't, please go check out the Out on the Wire book, anyone listening, because there's so many good stills in it. There's so many good different. The most amazing thing about it is like you've what you've done is you've packaged actionable steps. Like you're not just telling people how this American life does work. You're telling them, all right, you wanted to do this. This is exactly how they do it. You have no excuse to not be able to do it because this is how they do it. You might not have the manpower, but you can definitely find the time and resources to build it out. Yeah, I mean, that said, um, I don't expect anybody to wake up one morning and become Ira Glass. (laughs) It takes a long time and a lot of practice to get through that gap, you know. Um, But thank you. I'm glad it feels that way to you. One of the most um, interesting parts of doing that book to me was coming up with the visual metaphors for various very non-visual things like what does it look like to edit an audio story (laughs) you know and without using because initially actually in radio illustrated guide there's a picture of a sound wave and like editing a sound wave which was like mind-blowing to a bunch of people who later on became radio producers like i've had conversations with people who were like producers at radio lab who the first time they saw that was in my book and they're like oh that's how they do it and they couldn't you know it was amazing and it's not a thing that you would have seen on your home computer if you even had one you know in 1999 mm-hmm. um so it was re- it was really revelatory in that sense but then how do you talk about it conceptually and so i ended up with a minority report interface thing that i did where i have Ira um, rearranging word balloons and sound effects and narration, like bo- you know, comics boxes sort of in midair to show what that looks like to take this thing out, put this thing in and take these things and move them around. So those kinds of visual metaphors are, um, it's one of the things that comics is really good at. It's you know complicated to come up with the right metaphor, but it's something that comics is, it's a real strength for comics that you can explain that kind of thing so much more easily and it clicks so much more clearly than trying to say something like that in prose yeah i remember there was one metaphor i believe it was that someone was explaining things about like raising their family and also trying to do this but they're explaining it to you as they're walking through a forest so it's this place where Mm -hmm. i can't imagine you actually had the interview but somehow the the scenery you yeah no we were not in a forest (laughs) but the scenery you're creating the the like metaphor of like this he's moving through the forest he's moving away he's leading you He's moving up and down all this terrain. It paints a landscape that somehow makes it easier for me to anchor the ideas that are being shared better in my mind. Yeah, that's the dark forest chapter where I talk about like the really dark, difficult part of the creative process when you have to pull all these disparate ideas together and make something new out of them. And so I just took that metaphor of the forest and made it literal 
And then when I pivot in the center of that chapter to talking to Ira and saying, does this resonate with you? Do you like this idea of the forest? And he's like, yeah, it's not really a forest for me. It's more like the Khyber Pass. And suddenly we're hiking up mountains and trying to like make our way through to Afghanistan. Comics are brilliant. You can just put people anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. there's a scene where I'm, I'm talking to Jad Avamrod and he's talking about how sound does this. And, and it's a great connection of the sound metaphor to the visual metaphor where he says, all I have to do is change the sound and you go from this. And he's like sitting in his studio with the you know, computer by, behind him. And then he's like out on the range with Buffalo behind him. He's like, I can change where you are. By what I, how I change sound, but of course I can do that too with images. I actually remember, I think Latif Nasser was doing a bit for a fun drive where he was explaining how they did the sound design to explain this really concept, like complicated physics thing. And I remember the entire time I was in the car thinking, wait, Jessica already did that. I already, I already saw, like, it just felt like <laughs> I was seeing someone rehash a conversation I had read prior from you. Well, it may be, because it, like, it may have been the story that I've done, you know, like I've done only a few stories, but they are ones that come back, you know? Mm-hmm. And and the this, the book itself isn't in t- intended to be pedagogical directly, but mm-hmm. that's actually why I went, well, one of the reasons I went on and made a podcast out of it, because I was like, I just have this pedagogy like bone in my body and I have to, teach stuff. I don't know why. So the podcast is much more like I wanted to be much more clear that like, okay, here's how you can apply these concepts. Here's what you can do with these and not just in audio, also in any other narrative medium. I think now would be a good time to mention for anyone who doesn't know, there is a companion podcast to out on the wire or did you mean it to be a companion or did that just come sure, after? Yeah. Okay. Cause I remember you were talking, like you talk about creating it while you were putting out the podcast and you also talk to other people at NPR and other people everywhere. I think Robert Smith, you have a really good interaction with him on that podcast where he's trying to explain to you all the different ways he kind of like using metaphors to trick someone into explaining something better. Mm -hmm. And I loved it because it was that like extra piece of context. Like I feel like a lot of people, especially people who listen to NPR have a sense of Ira glasses, got that voice that slowly leads you from point to point. And it, it can work to imagine his voice in your head when you're reading the comic, but when you're actually hearing him talking to you, talking about how by the seat of his pants it all felt, it really connects. And that's why I think the podcast is such an excellent supplement because you are directly hearing them say the, the exact words that then lead into your lessons. Yeah, it was a really great opportunity to be able to use more of the good tape. Every every part of the cow at that point, not to stretch well, the metaphor. There's, I got I got more. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. No, that, that's incredibly true. Because again, like I mentioned before, you make it actionable. It wasn't just that you were making this companion piece, but in it, you gave us challenges. You said it doesn't matter if you're trying to become an interviewer a podcaster, an artist. Today, this week, I want you to go do one thing. And although I don't remember if there, I think it's too late now, but during, at the time, you were able to submit that material so that you and your colleagues could actually look at it and review it and give feedback. Yeah, I mean, it was not like we were giving, I mean, this was years ago. So yeah. it, is, it is too late. It was on G+, mm-hmm. so it's too late. <laughs> it was not so much so we could like give people you know, breakdown of their ideas, but so people could talk to each other, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm a really big proponent of cohorts and peer support. This might actually be a good point to segue into your more recent book, Growing Gills, How to Find Creative Focus When You're Drowning in Daily Life. 
because there are a few to me a few blocks especially when i was creating my podcast that like as i figured out how to do this thing the other pieces around it sort of fit into place more easily and a lot of your book talks about how to navigate those waters, how to get those pieces. And so maybe we can start that conversation with how to build that cohort. I mean, it's that's a tough question because I feel like I hear a lot from people who I work with that they try to build that, but they can't find people who are as serious as they are about getting the work done. And I hear that often, which is one reason why I run a group. You know, that's why I have a membership group. They're awesome. <laughs> they can, they have each other. And But in terms of finding it yourself, I, I would say structure is key. You know, knowing what's expected, having enough people that somebody can not show up and it's still a good meeting and not so many that, you know, you struggle to have your voice heard. So three to six people maybe in a, in a sort of accountability group and having very specific missions for when you check in with each other. It's, I guess, in a way you're setting tangible goals and then following up on them. Yeah, very specific goals. And also not just like, I want to do these things, but when are you going to do these things? Mm -hmm. How long are they going to take? You know, what comes first? What's most important? What are you not going to do? Like all of those kinds of things are principles that are really core to the creative focus work that I do. What, what started you on wanting to create this specific one about finding creative focus when you're drowning in daily life, as opposed to the other ones, which felt more focused on the actual act, or this one was focused more on balance? Well, this one is focused on not the content, but the structure of creating the work. Mm -hmm. And um, I have, I mean, to be clear, my most recent book is called Trish Trash Roller Girl of Mars. Not all my books are actionable, <laughs> like textbooks, right? So like I do fiction and I do other stuff as well. But like I have this very strong pedagogical sort of thread through my work in general. Like I have two textbooks on making comics, which proceed out on the wire, so mm -hmm. drawing words and writing pictures and mm -hmm. mastering comics, which are basically about the craft of comics and na and narrative. So the drawing part, but also the layout and storytelling, all that kind of stuff. But they also start to talk about building the life. And I think that that's always been an interest of mine. And as a teacher, helping uh, undergrads launch themselves into the world, it's been really, really important to me to build that into how I teach. And especially right now, where I teach at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, I'm the head of the illustration department there. In building out the illustration department curriculum, because it's a new department, I've focused really strongly on building professional practice and you know life management stuff and business practices and so on into the entire curriculum. So it's not just a little thing tacked on. It's like, how does what you're doing interact with future plans and how is this going to support your life? And how are you, you know, if you're going to art school and you're paying all that money to go to art school, you are telling me you want to be a pro. So let's talk about how that's going to work. You know, so this has always been a really, really strong interest for me. When I was doing Out on the Wire and I had the Out on the Wire working group, and we actually did live feedback in sort of interstitial episodes where we would talk about somebody's ideas from the group. So when I was talking to those people, I was thinking, well, what's my next move? What am I going to do next? And I asked them, like, what do you need? And I was sort of thinking, like, am I going to do another storytelling book or like a program, you know, a, co a coaching program or something like that? What I heard from people was just a lot of I am stuck. I'm procrastinating. I don't know how to get this thing done. It's overwhelming. I have too much stuff going on and I don't know how to choose and all these things. And um, as somebody who has completed a lot of very large projects, I felt well equipped to say something useful about that. And so I started a really tiny pilot coaching program course in um, 2015. Yeah, I think it's 2015, December of 2015. Just a really small, like just email version, basically, of what evolved into the Creative Focus Workshop. And then I started building that out and offered it two to three times a year over the last 
number of years. Between blogging about this stuff and the Creative Focus Workshop, that's really where Growing Gills came from. It was not the initial impulse wasn't, I'm going to write a book. The initial impulse is, I'm going to teach this and help people with this and coach this. And then the book was uh, trying to distill these ideas into something that, that people could you know, really take it and do some of it, at least on their own. Yeah. I remember you, especially in the podcast, you would talk a lot about using Trish Trash. As I recall, like you wanted to do a comic and you were just like in an idea block. And I believe you turned to one of your collaborators or maybe it was your husband and you just came up with like, I think it was three words, roller derby, Mars, girl. Yeah, no, it wasn't that specific. No, actually, this was not, it was not an idea block at all. This is working on uh, drawing words and writing pictures. The first textbook about comics, we were doing a chapter about generating characters out of nothing, which is an exercise that we've done many for many years in our classroom at SVA. This is an exercise where you pick three random characteristics. One is a physical characteristic, one is a personality characteristic, and one is a job or a role. And you pick random cards out of a box, and then you have to make something up out of that. And so in order to do the illustrations for this chapter, I had Matt give me three characteristics. And I believe it was X Games, cheerful, and wears a spiked collar. <laughs> and then the other character, because there's two characters, was nervous travel agent or something, and wears a, wears a kilt or wears a skirt or something like that. And so I decided to make a roller girl in a seven-legged Martian, and then history was made. So this it was really literally just an illustration for a textbook. And then I just really liked the idea. I was charmed by it. And the final result is nothing like the original at all. <laughs> but, you know, that's where it came from. That's still a meaningful example because a lot of us, we start with an idea. I remember when I started to want to do this podcast, I just kept thinking about like, I want to see more opportunities to mash up scientific or physics or natural history or whatever ideas and the things we see all the time and see how they come together to make something that we always, that always matters to us, whether it's shows, books, creative endeavors. And Along the way, the idea sticks with you to the point that you really want to pursue it. And along the way, you learn things about how that character or idea is going to play out, like how you're describing for Trish Trash. The idea stuck with you, and you nurtured it, and you kept working at it. I think that's also a good place to go further into how pieces of growing gills were informed by that process for you. I don't know that they were so much. It's not that process so much. Like I think that process that I, I followed for... Uh, Trish Trash, and I've definitely had for other projects. I have a, a project, uh, a book called Life Sucks that's about um, young vampires in love. Mm -hmm. That definitely, that came out of nothing, came out of a bar conversation <laughs> about how funny it would be to have a bunch of vampires working in 7-Eleven. That kind of spark for an idea, I think is really, it can be nothing. Like there's plenty of ideas like that I've had like that that have then dissolved into nothing. Um, but one of the things I say in Out on the Wire, um, pay attention to what you pay attention to. I think it's Ira who says this. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. And use that attention as a guide for what you're going to build. But also, I think it's really important to understand that you don't have to know a lot about it now. It doesn't have to be like pre-vetted and like approved. You have to allow that attention to lead you deeper into the thing. And the best ideas really come from immersion in them. And also like banging up disparate things with each other, you know, just kind of mashing this and that together and coming up with something people haven't thought of before. The way that Growing Gills came about really comes out of conversations with people. It doesn't come out of me like having some concept that I want to develop on my own. 
And in some ways, I feel like, especially when you're doing anything that's pedagogical, but especially anything that has self-help kind of implications, you know, something where people like really learning in general, I mean, honestly, is you have to do the development of that work in collaboration with students and co-create that material. Because if you sit back in your ivory tower and make a bunch of stuff for people and then put it out in the world, you're going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. You're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss a lot of opportunities and things that should be in there. And you're also going to make mistakes because you're going to forget what it was like to be a beginner, like skip over stuff that people need. You're going to be wrong about what people think and how they feel because you haven't tested your ideas on actual human beings. So when I did that pilot of what was then like the creative project planning something, those people in that pilot group were essential to building out the curriculum of the creative focus workshop. And every single time I've taught it since, I have learned more from the people I'm teaching. And, you know, it's helped my own creative practice. Everything's evolving. It's all evolving all the time. And so in some ways, it's interesting. Growing Gills came out two years ago now, and it's kind of like a moment in amber. Like there's a bunch of stuff that I teach now and think now and that is in the Creative Focus Workshop that isn't in there because I didn't hadn't thought of it yet. Nobody had told me that they had this experience and I hadn't had any thoughts about it. But that process of kind of banging up against other people and, and working out a solution together is one of my favorite creative modes to be in. You know, I do like to work collaboratively with fiction as well and to have conversations about fiction, but it's definitely not the same thing. It's not coming, it's not going to the same goal because I'm not trying to help anybody. I want people to understand my stories, but I don't, I'm not trying to like help them achieve something mm -hmm. <laughs> through it. You know, it's a very different thing. Yeah. It's the journey that's so valuable there. Like you point out, it's solidified amber because there are things there that there's no way you could have known them then that you know now mm -hmm. because you did it. Like it's the, is you you wish you could go back and change it but honestly you couldn't have changed it because then you wouldn't have learned it like a cyclical paradox of the mind mm -hmm. that the things we always wish we could have done are things that we couldn't have done because we had to do them the way we did to learn the thing we didn't know that got really off the rails um but it, it i think it goes into like you keep mentioning pedagogy the method of teaching the practice of teaching like the things you learn along the way as you become more exposed to these ideas help inform how you're going to teach better next time and that's why i imagine you get a lot more out of these continuous several time a year workshops than you would have if you had just created a book called it a day. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like my books, my comics textbooks come out of 10 years of teaching mm -hmm. live students. Mm -hmm. You know, the first time you teach anything, it's a little bit of a dog's breakfast. I'm sorry. I'm not I'm not actually familiar with that term. <laughs> well, now you are. I, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're a mess. They're like kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. And like you can pull it together by force of personality and by working hard and by working with the students and stuff. But the first time a course is offered, it's always like a bits of a scramble. Usually teachers are trying to do too much. Students get lost in various places and you have to kind of go like handhold them way their way through things. And until you're experienced to teaching one curriculum and you've developed it over a series of years, you don't know the questions that are going to come up. You don't know the parts where people are going to get lost until you do that. And when you do that, you're like, oh, well, I can cover all this stuff by adding this lesson. Oh, and this is obviously way too much work. So I'm going to take all this stuff out. That's a really, really big piece for teachers. Take mm -hmm. stuff out. I, I would like to jump back to something we were talking about before we started recording. First of all, I really enjoyed going to the Creative Focus Workshop and just seeing your little banner about all this quarantine isolation concern that we've all got. And just seeing the words, I've got you, coming from you, somehow put my mind at ease in a way I didn't know I needed today. <laughs> I'm really glad I could help you in that way without even being there in the room. That's 
that's really good. I'm really happy about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that what we were saying before, and I think this is bears repeating for your audience, which is obviously full of creative people, is that I think there's a tendency for us right now to want to feel like if you're not literally saving lives, like in the hospital or like making masks or doing something like that, that what you do and what you produce isn't worthy of your time and attention. It isn't like it doesn't really have value. And I felt that way really briefly um, at the beginning of this crisis and then shook it off because it's just crap. It's totally not true. And like what we need now, in addition to, I mean, our heroic and awesome healthcare providers and people who are making the equipment that's protecting them is we need inspiration and we need community and we need stories and we need to hold ourselves together. Like what is it that makes our life meaningful and keeps us going? It's, it's our stories and it's our creative work, you know, images and paintings and that kind of thing. So, you know, my work right now as a coach and teacher is to support people to do that stuff um, and to make those things happen. So I immediately got back to work (laughs) and kept doing that. And, you know, I have a big group of people in the Autonomous Creative Collective, which is the membership group that's sort of on the back end of the Creative Focus Workshop. It's been really, really great to be able to support each other through this really tough time. Uh, super important to be able to help everybody through those moments of self-doubt. You know, and I also realized that Growing Gills and the Creative Focus Workshop, they're designed and focused, designed for and focused on creative people, helping people, you know, get unstuck or, you know, get their priorities straight and actually finish that super scary, big creative project that's been sitting on the back burner or all of, you know, all of those projects one at a time, by the way you know, that's what it's for. But the tools that I teach really are about creating sustainability and resilience in your daily life, no matter what you're trying to get done. So even if you decide, like, I don't have bandwidth right now to work on my novel or my podcast or whatever it is, I just can't deal with that right now. You still can use the tools of the Creative Focus Workshop and Growing Gills to focus on the things that are important to you and that you do want to do. And so many people are trying to adapt to working from home and they've never done that before. They have no routines and no structure and and just feel like this like free floating anxiety all the time. So I kind of jumped into action and I was like, I got to do stuff. So I put together a blog post, um, which you can link to, of resources, which is sort of like my top blog posts that could be useful at this time, basically, Mm -hmm. to kind of get you unstuck and, you know, get your priorities in order and that kind of thing. And I started a book club for Growing Gills, a free book club. I started running that today. So I don't know when you're going to sh- do this show, but it like it'll all be archived on my blog, all the book club meetings and things. And so did that and then, you know, got the Creative Focus Workshop open again so people could join and, you know, just trying to be there and be supportive for people through my work. Well, thank you very much for everything that you've done for me personally. And then also for everyone out there right now who, and in the past who've looked to you for creative inspiration or just to help them move to a better state of mind in these trying times for all of those people. Where can we find you? Where can we find more of your work and your blog posts? Well, I'm at jessicaable.com. As I said, the worksheet, the one goal worksheet is at jessicaable.com slash OG. The blog is just slash blog. So the most recent posts have things about the C19 resources and and things like that, things along those lines. And you'll see the, the book club 
um, stuff as well. And you can find all of your sweating, the small stuff needs at our website, smallstuff.show. Obviously I have links to this episode and links to our discord and other places where you guys can get in touch. If you're having your own creative troubles, feel free to reach out. I'm always eager to hear the kind of products people are working on and see if I can give any sort of insight and help build my creative tribe. Jessica, thank you so incredibly much for taking the time to share all this with us. Anyone listening, please, if you, if you are working on something creative or you know a friend who's working on something creative or you just want to build that tribe, share this episode, share Jessica's work, go check out Out on the Wire and Growing Gills, and also definitely go check out Trish Trash Roller, Girl of Mars, because it is a really good read. Um, I didn't I didn't have a good way to, I guess, drop it into the episode before we got to that <laughs> point, but yeah, it is, it is pretty great. Just thank you again for all the incredible work you do. Thank you so much. This has been really a pleasure and I'm really glad to be able to reach out to your listeners. And I'm sure they're more than excited to hear from you. Till then, I've been your host, Cameron Buzard-Jamari, reminding you from movies to media to the world around us, it's details like these that make it worth sweating the small stuff. <laughs>